MSW Media. Thanks to Athletic Greens for supporting the Daily Beans. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, September 9th, 2022. Today, the Department of Justice has filed a motion to stay part of Judge Cannon's order in the Mar-a-Lago case. Steve Bannon has pled not guilty to six felony charges in New York State. <laughs> the Department of Justice is criminally investigating Donald's Save America PAC. And the Michigan Supreme Court has ruled in favor of adding a right to abortion amendment proposition on the November ballot. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hi, Dana. Happy Friday. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm good. There was a lot of news, some sad news, some happy news, some weird news. Yeah. And we do definitely want to uh, say goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed. That was the sad news. Passed away today. So uh, my thoughts are with the kingdom, the family, the royal family. And uh, it, it's been an interesting sort of uh, response from, from all different sort of uh, places, from Ireland and, and from Scotland and from, from England. And I just, I think think as far as her being uh, hilarious and a good practical joker. And, you know, I, I personally don't have a problem with the queen. I have a problem with monarchies, but she I thought she was a great lady and uh, she will be dearly missed. I do as well. And King Charles. No, no, no. I mean, let's I'll give the guys some slack. I just don't like him in general. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah. And Prince Andrew, like, I know. <laughs> Out in the public eye, I get, you know, since, since the settlement with, you know, for anyway. Every fucking government's a mess. It's not just ours. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know, right? You're not alone. Actually, not every. I shouldn't say that because I think like New Zealand or someone like that has an amazing female prime minister. Or, Finland's or great, even though she, yeah. she was caught dancing or whatever. How dare you? They're How dare dancing. you when you're dancing? Yes, I know. Oh, no. What are you, Beaumont and Footloose? What's wrong with dancing? I don't understand. But regardless, uh, rest in peace to Queen Elizabeth II. A little bit later in the show, I'm going to be discussing this Department of Justice filing that just went in. They're asking for a temporary stay, emergency style, on one of one part of Judge Cannon's bullshit ruling. Uh, they're like, we're fine with the rest of your dumbass shit, kind of, but like this thing's really important. I'm going to talk to Andrew Weissman about that. I was able to wrangle a little interview with him. And this weekend, we will be putting a show out like normal. But I will be traveling to D.C. I got a surprise invitation to the White House today. They're doing a celebration over the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act. And so they invited me. I opened so cool. the email and they're like, President Biden would like you to attend. And I was like looking around over my shoulder like, am I being filmed? Am I being punked right now? Am I going to book a flight and then find out that, you know, somebody Ashton Kutcher is yeah. at, the, at the airport? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to the White House. Um, but I checked uh, with the White House and it's real. And so uh, neat. I, I'm honored to be going. And so I'll be traveling Wednesday. There'll still be a show we'll be putting out. But I just you know, wanted to let you know that we'll, we'll be putting the news out on Wednesday a little earlier in the day. So there might be additional breaking news that we'll have to cover Thursday of next week. But other than that, everything else should be fine. All right, that's it. It's time for the Hot Notes. Hot notes. All right, Dana, the Justice Department is seeking to overturn a federal judge's ruling, at least part of it, the part that blocked investigators from reviewing a range of highly sensitive classified documents seized from the former guy's house in their ongoing criminal investigation. Prosecutors said in a new court filing that the U.S. District Court Judge Eileen Cannon's decision to temporarily halt the FBI's ability to investigate the FAPOTUS's handling and storage of classified materials and obstruction would cause, quote, irreparable harm to efforts by the intelligence community to protect national security interests. And this is really interesting the way they did that. Quote, in order to assess the full scope of potential harms to national security resulting from the improper retention and storage of the classified records, 
the government must assess the likelihood that improperly stored classified information may have been accessed by others and compromised. That is what the Justice Department counterintelligence chief, Jay Bratt, argued in the filing. Quote, but the inquiry is a core aspect of the FBI's criminal investigation. The Justice Department delivered an unsparing assessment of Cannon's contention. They were polite, but like you could read between the lines. You know, her contention that Trump might have a legitimate executive privilege claim over some of these seized documents, contending that a former president has absolutely zero plausible right to assert ownership of classified records. No matter what, in any universe, you can't say that those are possibly yours. <laughs> the Department of Justice filing amounts to a full-throated rebuke of the ruling by Cannon, who is a Trump appointee. Uh, prosecutors used the filing to describe her ruling as a danger to national security, one ignorant of the FBI's integral role in modern counterintelligence work, and lacking in an understanding of the complexities of executive privilege. Cannon's attempt to enjoin or block the FBI investigation while permitting a parallel national security review of the seized documents drew a similarly sharp rejection from the Justice Department officials. And Dana, this is what I was talking about. Like, how can you block them from their criminal investigation while allowing the risk assessment for classified materials to go forward? They're, they're inextricably linked. And that's what the Absolutely. DOJ said here. Yeah. They said, quote, such bifurcation would make little sense, even if it were feasible. Given that the same senior DOJ and FBI officials are ultimately responsible for supervising the criminal investigation and for ensuring that the DOJ and FBI are coordinating appropriately with the intelligence community on its classification review and risk assessment. In fact, prosecutors indicated the intelligence community had halted its review of the seized materials altogether, including an assessment of whether they or any sources and methods had been compromised due to uncertainty around Cannon's ruling. And, I, you know, I had asked, I said, maybe they'll file for a clarification. Well, they kind of just filed for a stay, They, they you know, to because there is it's not clear. And underscoring its case for allowing the intelligence and law enforcement components of the probe to work together, DOJ contends it was urgent that the FBI permitted to help investigate dozens of empty folders found at Mar-a-Lago with classification banners to determine what they once held and whether their contents may have been lost or compromised. They actually raised that as an example, which is frightening. Now, in its filing, the DOJ has asked Cannon to exclude all documents with classification markings from any special master review because he can't possibly own them and you have to show possessory interest to get a special master. And they, they want to do that while the government appeals her ruling to the Atlanta-based 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Justice Department's filing appended a sworn declaration from Alan Kohler, assistant director of the FBI's counterintelligence division. That's what Frank Figluzzi's old job is. And that declaration emphasized the FBI's key role in the intelligence community and its necessary involvement in any review of the seized materials for both criminal and national security purposes. So remember how I said this actually gives the DOJ an opportunity to add an, like a sworn declaration from an FBI agent. Well, here it is. Prosecutors are not seeking immediate relief from the portion of Cannon's order that called for outside experts or special, a special master to review the unclassified records for materials that could be subject to privilege claims, even though her ruling was stupid on that, too. They're like, whatever. If you want to have a special friend come and look at the shit that's not classified, fine. But the classified shit we got to move forward with. And they also filed to unseal part of the privilege review team's report. And I, again, I'll be speaking with Andrew Weissman a little later in the show about all of it. All right. And here we go. Steve Bannon, as we know, is that one time political advisor. Was he, though, to the former president pleaded not guilty, shockingly, in Manhattan criminal court Thursday to charges of defrauding donors to the We Build the Wall fundraising campaign for the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. The six count indictment charges Bannon and We Build the Wall itself with two counts of money laundering, which carries a maximum sentence of five to 15 years in prison. There are also additional felony counts of conspiracy and scheme to defraud along with one misdemeanor count of conspiracy to defraud. Bannon was released following his arraignment and is scheduled to return to court October 4th in three different shirts. All at yeah. once. Yeah, no, one shirt per felony. And I, <laughs> I guess I was wrong at the top of the show. It's, it's not six felony counts. It's five felony counts of one misdemeanor. So my bad. There you go. And a misdemeanor in a pear tree. Um, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going. This was a quote. I'm going to stay and fight this. He told reporters as he left <laughs> the courthouse because he's not going to stay and fight it that day. With this case, I'm begging you to remember the presumption of innocence. Oh, fuck <laughs> off. Because I'm totally guilty. Totally guilty. Earlier Thursday, 
as he arrived at the courthouse to surrender to authorities. He told reporters the charges were all about 60 days to the election. So they just think he's trying to make a stink, which is funny because he's not running for public fucking office. Yeah. Oh, they just indicted me now because it's like one day before the 60 day cutoff. Yeah, no, it really had no one gives a shit about you, Steve. No one gives a shit. Yeah. (laughs) The state charges brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, yay, resemble federal charges for which Bannon received a pardon by Trump and alleged that Bannon and the We Build a Wall defrauded 430 Manhattan-based donors out of $33,600. Now, across New York State, there were more than 11,000 donors defrauded out of more than 730,000, and that's according to the indictment. The pardon by Trump, it only applies to the federal case. It does not preclude the state charges. And people have to remember that across the board with those pardons. The indictment quotes Bannon telling donors at a June 24, 2019 fundraising event, remember, all the money you give goes to building the wall. Instead, the campaign's president, Brian Colfedge, I think that's how you say Brian's name. That's how I've been saying it, received a salary. Brian gave himself a salary of $250,000 that was secretly funneled to him by Bannon who directed We Build the Wall to transfer tens of thousands of dollars to a nonprofit that he controlled, which then paid Colfage, thereby obscuring the source of funds. And that's according to Bragg. Oops. Yep. Colfage and Baudelotto are not named in the state indictment, but are referenced as co-conspirators one and two, a sign that they could have assisted the Manhattan prosecutors build their case against Bannon. They totally did. They're they like, totally did. Unindicted co-conspirator one. And and this is a pretty open and shut case. I mean, there's text messages, emails. Bannon's like, I beg you to remember innocent until proven guilty. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'll remember that, Steve. And a federal grand jury investigating the activities leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the push by the former president and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election has expanded its probe to include seeking information about Trump's leadership pack, Save America. That's according to sources with direct knowledge. The interest in the fundraising arm came to light as part of a grand jury subpoena seeking documents, records, and testimony from potential witnesses. And there's multiple subpoenas here. The subpoenas sent to several individuals in recent weeks are specifically seeking to understand the timeline of the Save America's formation, the organization's fundraising activities, and how money is both received and then spent by the Trump-aligned PAC. Trump and his allies have consistently pushed supporters to donate to the PAC, often using false claims about the big lie and soliciting donations to rebuke the multiple investigations into the FAPOTUS and his business dealings and his actions on January 6th. According to Save America's statement of organization filed to the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, the committee was established just days after the 2020 election. At the time, the filing said the new committee is affiliated with the Trump campaign and the Trump Make America Great Committee, a small dollar focused joint fundraising committee between the president's campaign and the Republican National Committee, which has been sending out donor solicitation emails for Save America. So you remember how the one six committee dropped its effort to get the sales force stuff from the RNC? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet the DOJ has not dropped that. <laughs> no. Similar to regular political action committees, the leadership PACs can only accept up to five grand per donor, far less than the upwards of $800,000 donations that the Trump campaign and the Republican Party's high dollar joint fundraising committee, the Trump Victory Fund, had previously raised. Since its inception, the Save America PAC has brought in more than $135 million from suckers, including transfers from affiliated committees, and that's according to disclosure records. And as of the end of July, the PAC reported having just under $100 million in cash on hand. We know this PAC was paying for a lot of legal defense funds for witnesses and uh, other people involved in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, including the Oath Keepers. Well, there you go. And the last story for this segment, the Michigan Supreme Court on Thursday, this is interesting, it ruled in favor of adding a proposal to the November ballot enshrining the right to an abortion in the state's constitution. This is a big deal, ending a partisan feud that unexpectedly erupted when a state board refused to approve the question last week. The decision from the state's highest court came after a four-member Michigan elections board deadlocked over whether to allow the initiative at all. And two Republican members on the board of state canvassers declined to certify the question. Not shocking that a Republican declined to certify something. And that question would have required three votes, citing objections to the spacing and readability 
of the proposal text. <laughs> yeah, no, they I'm just sorry. don't want... What font? Is this Comic Sans? I don't feel good about this. <laughs> they just don't want Democrats showing up to the polls in November. That's why they didn't want their question on the ballot. And they're going to the Reproductive Freedom for All campaign, which led the signature drive behind the ballot question, petitioned the court to honor the will of the people and let voters decide. RFFA asked justices to expedite a decision before September 9th deadline when wording for constitutional amendments and legislative referendums must be finalized for the November ballot. Final ballots are mailed to overseas military voters starting September 24th. In its petition, the Reproductive Rights Campaign argued that the board, quote, abandoned its clear legal duty when it declined to add the measure to the ballot despite it meeting the necessary legal requirements. Anti-abortion groups, citizens to support Michigan women and Children First raised objections to the proposal in August. The group filed a challenge with the state, arguing that typographical and spacing errors created strings of gibberish that should be disqualified from being placed in the state constitution. If Michigan, I know, if Michigan voters decide to protect abortion rights, and I do believe they will, the state will join Illinois and Minnesota as the only states in the upper Midwest where abortion remains or is likely to remain legal. These states have already become a refuge for women and other people that need this procedure in that part of the country. Now, the high-stakes ballot measure is expected to draw voters across both sides of the aisle to the polls, potentially having implications for the governor's race. That's a big deal. Recent surveys indicate Whitmer has a lead over her Republican challenger, Tudor Dixon. Tudor Dixon. Tudor Dixon, running for governor. (laughs) Yeah, moderate Republicans, a key voting group in that state. They may vote one way on abortion and another for governor, which would be Mm. interesting. Yeah, but this is going to drive so many fucking Democrats to the polls, dude. That's why none of the Republicans wanted it on there. I love it. Four other states, California, Kentucky, Montana, and Vermont, will put ballot measures before voters this fall. California and Vermont's proposals will ask if voters want to enshrine abortion rights into state law, while Kentucky and Montana's question asks whether voters want to adopt laws prohibiting abortion. I worry about the wording on those, and I hope people read them, and I hope that there are a lot of ads talking about which way to vote on that for people that believe in the right to an abortion. And in August, Kansas voters, we loved, we saw this. It was amazing. It was a door-to-door, grassroots, boots on the ground. Kansas voters overwhelmingly rejected a ballot measure that would have stripped abortion protections from state law. That was a big deal, and it was fucking awesome. Yeah, and I do believe the wording will be pretty clear here on the Michigan ballot. Yes. So... That's amazing. Excellent. All right. We will be right back to discuss the Department of Justice's appeal of Judge Cannon's decision with Andrew Weissman. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I want to talk about something I use every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens a while back because I wanted more energy and an optimized immune system. And I wanted to stop spending a ton of money and, you know, so much time taking care of and sorting through like 25 different supplements that I had to keep, uh, you know, taking up room in my cabinet. But with one delicious scoop of AG1 by Athletic Greens, you get 75 vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, your immune system, which is really important right now, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It covers everything. And we want to thank Athletic Greens for their support. Right now, they're offering a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. I take mine first thing in the morning, easiest habit in the world to pick up. It really kickstarts my day. Athletic Greens is lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. It has no GMOs and no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. Plus, it's far less expensive than buying all the individual supplements so you save money and time. Right now, reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every morning, that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health and to make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com dailybeans. Again, that's athleticgreens.com dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Everybody, welcome back. Honored today to be joined by a former federal prosecutor, one of the prosecutors on the Mueller team, author of the book, Where Law Ends, and a Room Raider aficionado. Please welcome Andrew Weissman. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? It's really good to be here when we have, it seems like breaking news every day, but there's some today. So glad to be here to discuss it with you. 
Yeah, I'm really glad to discuss it with you, too, because you're one of the handful of people in the world that I can nerd out about this stuff with. And so I really appreciate your time. And I see Innes in the background there running around. So hi, Papa. Let's talk about this appeal, because they it seems like what they've done is they filed a notice of appeal to the 11th Circuit while also appealing for a partial stay to the worst part of the many bad parts of Judge Cannon's decision with the district court, with Judge Cannon to kind of, I guess, give her an out for her shit ruling. Can you talk a little bit about the process here and what you think of the filing in general? Yeah, so there, there's sort of two pieces to it, as you note. One is going back to her and saying, with respect to one part of her stay, uh, we're not. They want her to reconsider that piece, but they also say we want you to do it quickly. In other words, they they say one week from today we are perfecting our appeal, and they take what's co- what we call protective notice of appeal was filed today, which is another way of. I mean, that's like a shot across the bow, and the brief actually says we ask you to rule quickly. We're intending to appeal a week from today, so I think that was smart, and I think it's smart not just because it gives her a chance to correct a really serious error in her papers, but it's, it's, it's an error with like real consequence to the department. There are other errors, but there, there are things I think the department could live with. But the other reason to do that is not just to give her a chance, which is nice, but they actually put in the record things that they needed for their appeal. So they put in facts and arguments so that if they get to the 11th Circuit, the 11th Circuit judges don't say, there's nothing in the record on that. You didn't make that argument below. In other words, you'd have, um, I'm sure, really good appellate lawyers looked at this and looked at the record and said, we need to do this because we need to, if we're going to appeal it, and we should appeal it, we're not in putting our best foot forward. Yeah. And they did use this, I think, as an opportunity, uh, like you're talking about, to get stuff on the record for the for the 11th Circuit to submit a declaration from the assistant director of counterintelligence at the FBI, who was there to say, you can't bifurcate the risk assessment at the ODNI and the intelligence community and the ongoing criminal investigation. And I found it very, very interesting that they used an example, just as an example, just a hypothetical, the, the empty folders that were found. We need to be able to find out what was in those folders, if we've recovered what's in those folders, or if it's been lost or compromised. I thought that that was an interesting example to use. Yeah. um, So I thought it was really smart to put something in the record on that. Obviously, it was hard for them to anticipate not knowing what she was going to rule. It's hard hard to fault (laughs) DOJ for not having done that. So that they, you know, normally I try and be sort of equally critical on both sides if there's mistakes. But here, it's really hard to fault them for not having done this because who who would have anticipated that she would have done what she did? Mm-hmm. And so this is where, you know, my maybe the fact that I had worked at the FBI for, for a couple of years as the general counsel, it sort of just was so clear to me that this is the argument they have to make because I just started thinking about how would a national security review happen without having the criminal tools because you're going to sit there and go like, who had access? I mean, you need to do interviews, you need to do grand jury work, you might need to do search warrant work. All of that are criminal tools. And the FBI is used to that because the FBI is both an intelligence agency and a criminal agency, and they're used to that that give and take. The idea that you can do one without the other seemed fanciful. And they make an argument that I was making also, which is, I was just thinking about having been a supervisor at the FBI, the position that the judge put Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco in. I mean, they're supervising the criminal case and they're also important leaders in the intelligence community. So what is she expecting them to do? Um, like, are you, is she really going to be that intrusive to say, you know, I'm actually going to say that Merrick Garland has to choose? I mean, that's ludicrous. And then obviously they make a stronger point, which is there's no basis for this. And then there's everything that you're thinking of doing makes no sense because what they wanted to carve out was um, to say, as to anything that is classified, that by definition cannot be attorney-client privilege because um, when a civilian is talking, or even when he was president, is talking to his private counsel, it obviously was not 
with classified material. Second, there's no executive privilege that applies there, and they go through all of the the reasons um, that it doesn't apply to a former president. But they say, you know what, even if you're right, the Supreme Court has said it's outweighed in a criminal investigation like this. So they're basically saying, please rethink that, because while we're willing to live with a review for potentially attorney-client material or personal material, and we can live with that, there was no reason to say because of that kernel, you now are going to swallow the whole rule and say the entire ear of corn needs to be reviewed just to take the silly, <laughs> carry the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. No, it makes sense because, you know, I had been saying, well, they should at least file for clarification because you can't stop the intelligence community's review and risk assessment and the criminal investigation. Like, Tell us how you plan to do that, because your ruling makes no sense. Also, something that uh, now has come up, and I I had been talking about this for a while, like, look, the Presidential Records Act, she even put it in one of her footnotes in her her ruling, uh, which I put in quotes, that, hey, Presidential Record Act cases need to be heard in D.C., the D.C. District Court. And so I was, uh, you know, arguing jurisdiction. But then... I had realized with the DOJ's 38-page filing that the jurisdiction that they were arguing was the equitable jurisdiction, you know, because you don't have equitable jurisdiction over inequitable acts. You can't, you know, seek legal relief for an illegal under, you know, when you've committed an illegal act or, you know, allegedly illegal act. So tell us a little bit about why the Presidential Records Act here isn't even at issue, because what we're talking about is classified documents and an IC review inextricably being linked with an FBI, because the FBI has that dual mission, right? So yeah. talk about the PRA and why it doesn't really apply here. So this is like super nerdy, but the Presidential Records Act applies when you're dealing with White House records. There's a specific definition of what presidential records are and what they aren't. If something is a presidential record, it is required for the White House to give that to the archives so it's preserved. But in the definitions, it clearly says that it does not encompass, presidential records are not records that come from agencies, meaning that if the FBI has a a classified report or the NSA or the CIA and having been involved in this and having seen the, the PDB, the Presidential Daily Brief, There are lots of products that come from those agencies, and they're briefed to lots of people in classified settings. So those would be briefed to the White House. That under the strict definition, that's it's just laid out in the in the PRA. Those are not presidential records. They're definitely not personal records. They belong to the agency. So it is conceivable that in the search, since we don't know exactly what was there, that there were some documents that actually were created within the White House. So they could be presidential records, but there, I would imagine, a lot of documents that are coming from agencies thinking about just how the world works in that environment. So the PRA could be applicable to a portion, but not to everything. So that if you were going to say the jurisdiction is elsewhere, it would only be for part of it. And even then, the jurisdiction is for when the disputes between the former president and the archives about dissemination of those documents. That's not where we're at. They're, they're not making a complaint about the sharing of the 15 boxes. That is, Trump is not making that claim. That that would, um, given that they're saying these are presidential records and we gave the 15 boxes, that would be heard and would need to be heard in D.C. So I, I do think that she will technically have jurisdiction for this. Leave aside, by the way, that I think this should have been brought up before Magistrate Judge Reinhardt. I mean, I think it looks like terrible judge shopping. And I also think she should be articulating how she has the case and why she has the case and why she isn't giving it to Judge Reinhardt because it looks bad. 
there may be very good reasons, but it'd be, I think it'd been useful for her to be more transparent. But having said that, I don't think it's an issue of she needs to say it should go to DC. I know, by the way, other people disagree with me. I'm just giving you my take. Well, and even if there were some presidential records in the stuff that isn't classified documents, it seems like the DOJ is like, you know, fine, go ahead, have a field day, have a special master, look through everything that's not classified, but you can't stop us from criminally investigating, you know, based on and while we simultaneously do this risk assessment. We simply can't because it's, again, like the, the FBI's dual mission, if we find that something was compromised how is that not part of a criminal investigation also i mean you had to you under, you could understand someone saying okay there's top secret compartment in information it may have to do with nuclear capabilities of some country including where we got that information like whether we developed it or whether we're getting that from countries that are allies or very often countries that don't want to be known as giving us information now we have to share that with people who we don't want to give classic, like give top secret clearance to. We don't know who the special master is going to be. Um, the lawyers, air quotes, on the team certainly run the gamut from the reputable to, let's just say, uh, questionable. So the whole idea of disseminating that to in this context, I think, puts them in a you know, is in a, in a in a way that you could see exactly what they they had to do what they did in this filing. Yeah, and talking about conflicts of interest, I know that Jim Trusty, Trump's lawyer, said, you know, we really need to take a look at that taint review team because one of them works in the unit under you know uh, under Jay Bratt. Yeah, I mean, look under that theory, they all work for Lisa Monaco and Merrick Garland. I mean, come on. But then he promptly nominated himself to be special master, as though that doesn't have some sort of a conflict of interest. It was absolutely bonkers. But I, I missed I missed that. That would be insane. A special master is not. <laughs> he did during the hearing, uh, yeah. the transcript. He was like, well, you know, I could I, I have a clearance. I could be special master. Right after he said, you know, the taint team works for whatever. It was absolutely bonkers. But speaking of the taint yes. team, one final thing that, that the DOJ has done is filed a motion to unseal some of that privilege review, the taint team. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, we have little drips and drabs about how the taint team process works. Uh, and we have drips and drabs because the judge asked some questions of two of the attorneys who are on the taint team. So we have a little bit of information. And then she characterized some of that in her opinion. So the, the government taint team filed a motion also today saying, please unseal the filing we made to you, not the exhibits that would reveal attorney-client information, arguably, but this, the process, um, so that there's that is now in the public record. There's no reason that shouldn't be. Uh, since it's been described, I suspect that's the government saying we really want to make it clear there's a full accounting here and not this is a polite way of saying and not your skewed representation of the facts. And just to take another jab at Judge Cannon, just starting when I remember reading that, which feels like a month ago, um, <laughs> when I just started reading the facts and I was like, oh, my God, because that's where there should be a just straightforward clean representation of everything. That's what you teach. I teach in a law school. That's what you teach in law school. That's what you teach as a partner in a law firm is that the facts are not where you play games. The facts are where you just put it all out there and then you make your arguments. Um, and especially when you're in the government, you do you know that is, it's like a death knell um, if you start playing around with the facts because the judge is never going to trust you. The, the recitation of the facts was so skewed and erroneous that I was, I just went, oh my God, this is really going to be like a train wreck. And are you talking about like when she was saying, look, we found some medical records, which means every single document that you seized could be wrong and we have to look at everything now? Is that kind of what you're referring so to? So that's one example. Another example is when she said, oh, look, um, the, the Trump said you can look in the storage bin without saying no, no. They then said, can we look at the actual documents? And they said, no. So she leaves out that part and makes it sound like, oh, they were open kimono, just you can look at everything. Or she said, you know, um, in this situation, um, 
uh, President Biden has and actually asserted uh, executive privilege, which is she did. This, he did. Oh. So misleading when she she references the archives letter, which lays out in chapter and verse exactly what happened. And more than that, if that was a concern of hers, any judge just being fair and dispassionate would have turned to the government and said, is there an assertion here of executive privilege? Appoint me to where I should look. I need to have a clear assertion of it if you're going to rely on that. Now, there's just... Mm -hmm. You raised that issue, and it was just so unfair because she didn't do that with the government. But with the defense, she was saying, oh, aren't you essentially forgetting to raise executive privilege? (laughs) She sort of coached them into, don't you want even broader review? She did a lot of coaching there, you know, like, hey, submit your equitable and or anomalous jurisdiction arguments, which they completely ignored on the Trump side. But yeah, no, this, this filing is great. I think it's very comprehensive. It's a good strategy. It goes at it with a scalpel. And, you know, they should, you know, to get a stay, you have to show you're going to win on the merits, which they have a clear case because classified documents can't, you know, can't belong to him. And that it does. And they spelled out how it would irreparably harm public interest and their investigation. So I think they have got a really good case here. I'm interested to see what Judge Cannon does with this and the 11th Circuit. Yeah. You know, it's it'll be really interesting whether she takes it to heart or or does what a judge once said to me, you know, you can cover a lot of ground with the word denied. Um, Meaning, I wonder if she's going to give it the back of her hand and just say no. Meaning, take your chance at the 11th Circuit. Like what she did with the amicus brief from the Republican parties, which she was just like, nope, swatted it down. I don't, that's one where I don't understand that. I, I don't, first, I just don't recall ever hearing of a judge not accepting an amicus brief. But I don't understand you have all that power as a judge. And it's it's just argument. Why not just hear it? I mean, I don't understand. Like, I, like if you want to hear amicus from all sorts of sides, fine. I just, it seemed, that just seemed, you know, I just feel like she needs to go back to judge school. That's the kind <laughs> of, you don't, you don't do that. You don't issue an order that says I've made a preliminary decision when the government hasn't even been served. Um, I, I just don't understand why you wouldn't just issue a briefing order. And if you need to say, these are the, these are the issues that I want to make sure the parties address. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. But it, it just showed such a lack of experience and thoughtfulness about just ju- the process of judging. So, you know, leave aside the sort of the ultimate ruling and, and how that was constructed. It just, you know, I, I can see, you know, the department just really being beside themselves uh, in terms of how she handled it. But, but again, I just want to commend the, the DOJ. And as you know, I've, it's, I'm not always positive on everything they do. And I, I just think it's a really, really well done brief. Yeah, we'll see how they, we'll see how they take it. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. Uh, come on. Everybody get Where Law Ends. Super relevant book. Very well written and lots of cool inside stuff from the Mueller investigation and beyond. So we'll also look out for you for your hits on MSNBC. They've been great. I appreciate your time. Andrew Weissman. Thank you so much. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody. You know, I love sleep. I love falling asleep and I love waking up on my Helix Sleep mattress. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. The Helix lineup now has 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's super easy to find which Helix mattress works best for you by taking their two-minute Helix sleep quiz. You can do that at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm bed, so it's the best mattress I've ever owned. Uh, Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. They offer a 100-night risk-free trial. And if you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. Plus, Helix mattresses are made in the United States. They come with a 10- or a 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And you don't have to take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one overall mattress pick by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a solution for improving your sleep. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders, plus two free pillows for listeners. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. 
With Helix, better sleep starts now. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, anything you want to send us, photos of your pet, adoptable pets in your area, shout outs to your spouse or a loved one or someone special in your life, whoopee stories, anything you want to send, send it to us at dailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact. Heads up, season four, Dana, of Prevail with Greg Oliar is out today, Friday. Nice. Yeah. Greg's guest is Craig Unger. We've had him on the show here on The Beans a few times. He's a friend of the show, author of American Compromat. You do not want to miss this premiere episode. It's called Prevail. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And shirt stuff, it's a mess. We're sorting it out. New tracking numbers will be arriving in your inboxes. First up, correction from Lucas. AG and DG, your podcast is a light in the darkness of these times. On the September 8th pod, AG stated there are only eight nuclear powers in the world. However, there are nine. USA, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, France, Britain, and North Korea. Thanks for all your insight, amazing guests, and greatness. Thank you for the correction, Lucas. Absolutely. I love learning about this stuff, especially when we have it wrong just by a little. This next one's anonymous, but the pronouns are she and her. Just wanted to add a note on the Steve Bannon wearing a ton of shirts thing. Way back when I was with my ex, his dirtbag brother was always in trouble with law enforcement. Brother would always wear at least two outfits at the same time to each court appearance he had. The reason is that when you're put in jail, at least where we live, they give you just one shirt and pants. You can wear what you had on when you were taken in, plus what they give you. So he would wear multiple outfits when appearing in court. So then he had chances of clothes while in there. I have no idea if this is still true, as this was way back in the, in the late 90s, early zeros, I guess we call them the early thousands. 2000s. As pet tags, please accept this picture of our majestic floof, Dixie, sleeping on her daddy's leg. I'm sorry if that was hot in the mic, but that is a floof. Look at this baby. Could you imagine if that's why Steve does it every time he goes to court? He's like, fuck it. If I go to prison, at least I've got three or four shirts with me. (laughs) He's always just under threat of going to jail. Better wear all all my clothes. (laughs) I could get arrested at any minute because of all of the crimes I've committed. So I'm going to be prepared. Oh my gosh, this dog is adorable. Thanks for sending that in, Anonymous. Next up from uh, Anonymous, pronouns he and him, A-G and D-G. I absolutely love the shows. You both have been the reassurance I need while withstanding the onslaught of gaslighting. Thank you for speaking truth to power. I wanted to share a bit of bittersweet news in the form of pet tax. My family had a member of our feline family pass a few months ago. Her name was Ollie Cat Fantastico. My wife had her for over 14 years, and she was the softest, sweetest cat I'd ever been around. Although it took almost two years of being around her to let me pet her belly, previous relationships were not nice to Ollie, and she didn't like men. Before we knew she was sick, my wife and sister-in-law planned our first family trip to the mountains with our daughter. We'd been pretty strict about going out, and luckily we haven't gotten COVID, fingers crossed. I work from home and we are homeschooling. Nothing special. Just a few homebodies hunkered down for two years. Holy shit, I need to get outside. (laughs) They had planned the trip and it was the first big trip for our family and we were all excited about it. We'd been planning and hyping it up for two weeks. A week before the trip, we noticed Ollie isn't doing well. We take her right to the vet and they do a battery of tests and they tell us she is dehydrated and make sure she drinks and eats. The other tests came back okay, in quotes. Two days later, we took her right back because... Before we left, she, she wasn't doing well. We were told the same thing and given a subcutaneous drip for her hydration. We can't cancel the trip and our family isn't COVID safe and we didn't want to board her. I stayed home and I made sure she was taken care of and called my family as much as I could. Cell service was terrible where they were. And this is where it gets sad. While they were in the mountains and I was spending her last days caring for her, I couldn't help but cry, feeling so much love for a creature who just wants love, affection, and food. And that's only a fraction of what my wife was feeling. Our other cat, One-Eyed Willie, named before me, right, from Goonies, sat and comforted us both by sitting and watching to make sure we were going to be okay. Somehow I think he knew she was coming to an end. Just a reminder, to hug, pet, play catch, or whatever your furry family enjoys, we should cherish every moment we get because it will never be enough. Now the sweet part. We ended up taking a family vacation after two and a half years, and Willie is a happy, healthy 18-year-old cat 
He got a haircut recently and we're waiting for it to grow back. I've included pet tax of both Ollie Cat Fantastico and Willie the One-Eyed Cats. Thank you, AG and DG. You're amazingly wonderful humans. You're inspirational. Oh. What a beautiful submission. And look at this giddy. Oh my God, look at one Oh my God, One-Eyed Willie. I love <laughs> One-Eyed Willie. Oh. Well, sending love. I know exactly what this feels like, anonymous. So Indeed. my heart goes out to you. Thank you so much for that. This is next one's from Nick, pronouns he and him. Recently, I heard a scratching in the chimney of our wood-burning stove for three nights in a row. Obviously, an animal of some sort was in there, but I had no way of seeing what. After the third night, before I went to work, I went to open the stove's door to take a picture inside so I could get advice from whoever could give it on how to get whatever was in there out. As soon as I did, I heard a noise that sounded like a cross between a cicada's wings and dolphins clicking. After nearly jumping out of my skin, I looked at the door and found that my question was now moot. A small brown bat was hanging from the door, seemingly having been briefly pissed off that I woke it up before it went back to sleep hanging there. I grabbed an empty pretzel tub and I held it under the bat while I used an acrylic sign letter. I have a lot of odd things (laughs) to do the Tweety Bird. This itty bitty bit to undo its grip. Oh my God, that's funny. The little... Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> Making the little guy plop into the pretzel tub and be really pissed about it. I quickly put the proper lid on loosely so as to still allow airflow. My wife and son got to admire the bat's cuteness while I got my coffee and bagel for the morning. In fact, while I was putting peanut butter on my bagel, my wife was holding the tub up and tilted it a bit, causing the bat to gently slide into the side. As happens not infrequently in our house, I'd said something surreal yet 100% sincere. Rose, be careful with the bat. (laughs) I altered my route out of town slightly to stop at a park away from my house so that the bat didn't just swoop right back into the chimney. I eventually had to gently dump it out onto the ground because it wouldn't climb out um, onto the branch. I guess it was just that sleepy or scared with extra splash of tiny sky puppy rage. (laughs) Sky puppies. Pet Texas, a couple pictures of this little tweet. This little tweet flew along with one of Cookie, our half corgi, half mini Australian shepherd. I usually send in pictures of our full corgi, Gur, I'm assuming, but this picture of our other little goofball was too good not to share. Plus, the bat doesn't technically count as pet tax, even though I refer to it as an inadvertent temporary pet. Oh, I think I think the bat counts, but I yes, mean, the bat Nick- really is weirdly cute uh they're adorable i love bats and and uh nick told us this story oh, the on picture the... got me though <laughs> nick told us this story on the happy hour on the zoom happy hour for patrons oh and there's the, <laughs> the dog there's the dog he's like what the fuck is that so adorable indeed all right next up rosie from new jersey she her dana's home <laughs> long time faithful listener listening slightly inebriated from the beautiful island of aruba <laughs> Hubby and I are celebrating our 20th anniversary <gasps> in our happiest place in the world. Even though I'm away, I still start my days with my favorite people. Hugs. Aww, oh, Rosie, thank you for this. What a gorgeous pictures these are. These are so good. Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Bermuda, Bahama. <laughs> okay. Whoa. <laughs> All right there, base. Here we go. This is from Cheryl. Pronouns she and her. Hey, Allison, Dana, and all. Our group wanted to show and tell our postcard project that's mailing out to Democratic and independent women in our highly red townships located in Montgomery County, a suburban Philadelphia Collard County. We are mailing 2,700 plus of these postcards messages that were dreamed up, designed, financed, and executed by a small core group of eight to 10 women. We are the Resistance Book Club and the Upper and Lower Salford Safford? Am I saying Safford Democrats right? You got me. This is Pennsylvania, so it could really be anything. It could be like everything's silent and it's a whole nother word, but Lower Safford Democrats. Okay, we must give props to Steadfast Democrat of the male persuasion who conceptualized this mind-blowing image. He's the husband of one of our group members. Anyway, the Republican Party has no shame in co-opting universal messages to fit their narrow agenda, in this case, pro-life, in quotes, our goal is to show people that there are other strategies to consider and preserve all precious lives. We are harnessing our collective passion to tip the balance toward a strong democracy. To paraphrase historian Heather Cox Richardson, the past cannot be changed, 
but we are all in a position to write the history of the future. If anyone out there is in the Beans universe and wants to use this image for their own postcard campaign, we can direct them to our local union printer to reorder. Thanks, Allison and friends, for all you do to keep us informed and to lift our spirits up every day. Shout out Cheryl, Amy, Joyce, Jill, Dennis, Dorothy, Sandy, Ginny, and more. Email address for this is upper.lower.salford, S-A-L-F-O-R-D dot Democrats at gmail.com. Upper.lower.salford.democrats at gmail.com. Oh, look at this. This is wonderful. That is really good. Um, it's powerful. Fuck. Yeah, it says vote pro-life. And then on the bottom, it says vote Democratic on November 8th. There is a picture of a assault rifle with a circle, red circle and a line through it. And then it lists all of these shootings. Uh, Orlando Nightclub, Planned Parenthood, Baton Rouge, Cascade Mall, Buffalo Supermarket, Tree of Life Synagogue, Aurora Theater, Virginia Tech, etc. Um, just very There's too powerful. many fucking names on here. Very, very powerful. All right, cool. Um, thank you for sending that. And um, man, good luck over there in uh, Salford, Safford, Salford, however you pronounce it there in Pennsylvania. Write in, let us know, because I'm sure we mispronounced it. <laughs> and thank you all for all of your submissions. It's been a hell of a week in the news. Seriously, um, I, I, I know that, you know, we do this, we put out the news for you, but y'all are here for us as well. And so thank you for that. Again, hearts go out to to the royal family and the passing of, of Queen Elizabeth. And do you have any uh, final thoughts today, Dana? I do, because today, as you're listening to this, is my mother's birthday. Oh. And so I want to wish my mom a very happy birthday. She's one of the best people on the planet. She's a dear friend, a huge fan of mine, and I am of her, and I love her dearly. So happy birthday, Mama. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday to your mom. Tell, give her a squeeze for me. I definitely will. All right, everybody, we'll be back on Monday with more beans. Uh, Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And I've been TG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.